This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have two very special guests with us. They are Trisha Banteague and Kathy Zoe. Trisha is the co-founder and CEO of Queenly, a formal wear marketplace and search engine. After graduating from UC Berkeley, she's worked at Facebook and Google in executive recruiting. Her inspiration for starting Queenly has stemmed from her experience as an active pageant contestant, having recently served as Miss Asian Global and Miss California Earth. Kathy is the co-founder and CTO of Queenly. She's graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and has an engineer at Pinterest and has been an engineer at Pinterest and Venmo. Her and Trisha met during a college internship at a tech startup and have been working on Queenly since Trisha mentored through her first pageant. She's drawn on her full stack engineering experience to build Queenly on web, Android, and iOS within the first year of launching. Welcome to the show, Trisha and Kathy. Thank you. Oh, thank you thank for you. the intro. Those are pretty good. That's a <laughs> yeah, we're good because you guys are so impressive. <laughs> yeah, we're super excited to have you on the show. Let's start with Trisha. Like, what was your upbringing like? Um. Okay. Well, right to the good stuff. Huh? We just had a yep. today, so fresh um, in your mind. I would say I think um, my upbringing was definitely. Um, unconventional when it comes to like your typical Asian upbringings. Um, I know that the stereotypes for Asian households is like, you know, tiger mom, dad, like really hard on you. And like, you should be a doctor and lawyer, et cetera. And I actually had like the complete opposite where I think my parents, my family just didn't care what I did. Um, And even when I had like accomplishments at school, it's kind of like, they don't know what it is. So they don't care. Um, I come from a very low income family. Um, I was born in the Philippines and then my mom and dad had to divorce when I was like age of two. My dad went to Japan to work and then my mom went to the U.S. to work. And so I was pretty much left at the hands of my grandparents um, growing up. And um, it was hard because the Philippines is a Catholic country. So most kids have both their parents. So it was always just like a struggle for me in that sense. Um, and I've always known that I was going to be, quote unquote, reunited with my mom um, later on. And then at the age of 10, she petitions me to go to Las Vegas, Nevada, the best place to raise a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, she um, she actually had a very se- severe gambling addiction and it affected our relationship a lot. Um, at the age of 17, I decided that it was best for me to go off on my own um, as it was like really affecting my my school, um, my goals in life, etc. And so I was very much independent then, and I was way in over my head, but um, I got through it. Uh, I worked a lot of jobs, <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's been my upbringing. Wow, I mean, shout out to you too. That's that's a pretty tough upbringing. You made I feel like like. You that upbringing made you the person that we that you are today, like so strong and resourceful, independent. That sounds like a great quality behind a tech founder, you know, greediness, perseverance, resourcefulness, yeah. all of it. <laughs> Who knew one day it would be useful? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that must have been such a hard decision, especially yeah. at a young age. You know, I, I'm glad that you got to know what your goals were and you knew what was best for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Let's hear from Kathy. What was your upbringing like? Yeah, it was actually somewhat similar and thankfully, uh, but also unfortunately, unfortunate in the upbringing of how my family also came from a place with not too much money, uh, also an immigrant family. I had to do with various things throughout my childhood and high school, including um, being able to financially support myself through college, through internships, scholarships. 
dealing with substance abuse from a family member and having a lot of that uh, childhood trauma sort of be something I needed to be resilient of and grow out of. And what was a really good silver lining out of that was that was how Trisha and I had bonded. That's how we trust each other because we both understand each other's personalities from that place of empathizing like, okay, we, we think like this, we are trying to grow, we're always trying to learn and we're trying to really prove ourselves in this industry where we've had so many disadvantages and not the advantages that other people have. Wow. That's very powerful. And so Trisha, we know that you grew up in Vegas and Kathy, you grew up in Boston, right? Yes. How were, how was growing up in those areas like kind of shaped your Asian identity? For me, it was kind of interesting because uh, Asian Americans were a minority there. I think Chinatown was at most two blocks in radius. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, yeah, yeah. Uh, thankfully, some of my, uh, there were a lot of family friends that we kept in touch with here and there in Boston, but I did feel like a minority. I did feel like, oh, I'm never going to be that, you know, face of leadership, face of America, success, that sort of thing that, um, that sort of thing is just not for you when you're very aware of that minority status. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for Vegas, I would say now at least there's like a decent uh, population uh, of Asian Americans there, uh, Filipinos, Chinese, Vietnamese, Korean. And I think it, it has to do with the job opportunities there that are very easily attainable for immigrants as well as like it's really cheap. But um, I never quite realized how conservative Vegas was when I was growing up because I had no knowledge of like political ideals. And so I came to the U.S. fifth grade and all my friends were like pretty much white until like later. And, then uh, you know, I would go to their houses and um, they would yell at their parents. <laughs> and it's just like such a very different thing. Right. And that was weird to me. But I think a lot of Asian Americans there do try to assimilate a lot to the white um, dominant culture. Um, And now, like looking back, like when I visit Vegas, there's like Trump signs everywhere and people carrying guns. And it's just such a weird thing for me um, now that I'm very much aware that that's like, oh, that's kind of weird. Um, That's not okay. But as a kid, it's like you don't know, like Mm -hmm. you don't know these things. That's what I experienced. Yeah, that's that's some awesome, in, interesting experience to hear from. Yeah, uh, especially for for us. I grew up mm-hmm. in California. I mean, I was surrounded by Asians all my life. Yeah, and it wasn't until I got to college that I started traveling more. That I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a nor- I am minority. <laughs> <laughs> no one told me that. <laughs> that's a rude awakening for me. So, out of curiosity, too, I know that you guys both have pretty rough upbringings in life. I'm kind of curious, like, what what are your views about money then? And what is it like now? That's a good question. You can start. <laughs> yeah, I say that it took a lot in terms of therapy, dealing with mental health, just like reflecting on myself as a person to really feel comfortable doing certain things, just as, like, as much as just wasting $10 even. Uh, it was a huge struggle for most of my life, just feeling like I never... Um, in college, trying to make sure my bank account would stay positive as I paid for food and classes and tuition fees and, and really feeling that weight. And I think that's something a lot of Americans struggle with is the sort of financial trauma that it's brought on you if you grow up with that mindset. And it's so hard to get out of. Uh, that's why it's been such a struggle for people to be able to become founders and entrepreneurs if you've grown up with that mindset. It takes a huge amount of financial risk and a huge amount of feeling like you can believe in yourself and having that like self-confidence to take even more risks because your whole life is saying, oh, let's not put myself in that situation. So it's very counterintuitive. Yeah. I mean, for me, I've had a very complicated relationship with money finances because of my mom and seeing her just like be buried in debt and like file two bankruptcies and just a bunch of things like taking out, um, you know, payday loans and here and there um, that really scarred me to the point where I, I wanted to have financial security for myself. And I never wanted to ask money from anyone, even like $20 from a friend. Like I, I was very much into like, I 
don't want to be like my mom. So I have to be super independent and not rely on anyone for help. And that has been the hardest thing for me to get over when it comes to fundraising, especially as a founder, as a CEO. And it was very difficult for me to ask money from a stranger that I've never you know, really met. I'm not close to uh, when all my life I've avoided asking for money. And this is something that Kathy has helped me drastically with. And also when I started on my journey, um, healing from my traumas um, by actually, you know, seeing a therapist and um, being more aware of my mental emotional health. uh, My therapist also reminds me that it's like, it's different now, like this is different. Um, But that's hard, right? When you're really scarred from traumas to Mm -hmm. really separate yourself from that. And I'm still learning, but I've definitely gotten a lot better and I've gained a lot more confidence and like insight when it comes to money, fundraising and finances now. Yeah, I've learned a lot from Trisha too in terms of us relying on each other for that emotional support of putting ourselves in that situation. Um, It takes a lot of mental health growth and a lot of just relying on the people around you to, to like heal from that mindset. Yeah, I mean, I never thought I would be able to ever raise this much money before <laughs> and I've never seen so many zeros in my bank account yeah. when you're when you're when your parents are like missing payments on the rent and the rent is like eight hundred dollars uh anything that we any angel check any the amounts that tech and the whole of Silicon Valley talk about it just feels crazy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah I think I you that. touched upon a very sensitive topic for a lot of us too and that's unlearning our trauma and what we believe is possible feel that's a common theme among first generation Asian Americans that Mm -hmm. we have Mm -hmm. to unlearn a lot of things from our parents, especially from the scarcity mindset point of view. And I think that's like a really good way. I think like what you guys went through and unlearn, it's a good, um, it's a good um, role model for a lot of us to follow, you know, it's because like a lot of people in, in this situation can't find themselves coming out of that situation but you guys found each other. You guys found a network and support to really help you level up and unlearn certain things and get to the next level. The other thing, other thing I do want to touch upon is going to therapy and mm-hmm. seeking mental health experts. That's, that's, that's such a stigma in Asian culture, you know? And the fact that you guys normalized it and we're trying to normalize it and our part too. We've been having a lot of more mental health events in the Asian Hustle Network. It's because it's a real thing. You know, it's something that, especially that our generation is becoming more aware of. But for our parents, and we talk to them about mental health, they present, they, they pretend like it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> Elephant in the room. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Shove it under your head. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for the longest time with my family and whoever, um, mental health, like if you need to see a therapist, like something's wrong with you and you're crazy. And mm-hmm. so, meaning, you shouldn't do that. Meaning you don't need it because you don't want to seem like you're crazy or mm-hmm. that you're, you know, mentally ill or something. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a huge stigma to, to break, especially now in 2021. Uh, I, I owe a lot to Kathy when it comes to Stop my, it. No, but <laughs> I would have never, ever started on this journey um, because I've always been like a, a go-getter type of personality. Like I have to keep going. I don't have time to think about my feelings. Like I don't have, you know, I care about my feelings. I just have to keep going. But Kathy reminded me that like, that it's also, I should also prioritize like my feelings, myself, my mental health. And she's the one that recommended that I see a therapist. Mm-hmm. And I was really hesitant at first, but cause I thought, how can a stranger help me? Like mm-hmm. they don't know me, they're not my friend. And I don't want to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, but you know, luckily at that time, I was working at um, big tech companies that were, you know, they were able to um, reimburse that cost. So I was like, okay, why not? Let me try it. Um, and since then, like, it's helped me tremendously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I love that. I love how you two are just learning a lot from each other. And, you know, same thing with my family. Like they, when I grew up, they didn't, you know, even talk about therapy. Like they always thought like, if you had to go see a therapist, there would be something wrong with you, but there's so much strength and courage that it takes to actually see a therapist because you're showing that you want to improve yourself. And there are things in your life that you can't organize yourself inside your thoughts that a therapist can help you with. And I love that you two are like recognizing that. Definitely. I do want to switch topics onto Queen Lee. Like, let's hear more about Queen Lee and uh, what's the, what was the inspiration behind it? Yeah. When, when, when did you guys? <laughs> How did you get into pageantry first? Yeah, How let's start chronologically first. And, you know, we'd love to know about like the elephant in the room. You know, there's obviously there used to be like a bad connotation to pageantry. But we'd love to know like your perspective on how that industry is like breaking stereotypes and how like they're embracing feminine feminism and just like, you know, intelligence as well. Can I start on this? Because yeah. I, I actually just did my first national pageant this past weekend. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Congratulations. Patrick supported me, helped mentor me through a lot of it. Um, shout out to my pageant coach if she's listening. Shout out to my boyfriend, who, everyone who's helped me. But uh, what I wanted to emphasize is, so the pageant is called Miss Earth United States. It is a focus on environmental activism. So you, people join this pageant because they are passionate about saving the earth and they want to really showcase that as part of their platform. And another great thing about, uh, I'd say that one of the first breakthroughs that has happened this past weekend is one of my dear friends, my pageant sisters, uh, Emma Loney, Miss Wisconsin Earth. She placed in top 12 and she- uh, Out of 50. Out of 50. Wow. She is a plus size model. She is active in promoting body positivity. And normally the there's a whole stigma of men's beauty pageants of like mm -hmm. carrying along this one narrow uh, mindset of like what beauty should be. But there's been so much great representation in um, plus size women being part of this mainstream community. In, um, uh, black women and women of uh, different ethnic backgrounds being able to wear their natural hair. And I think that is so beautiful. There is, uh, there's such a great spotlight on that and it's really changing the standards of beauty. I'm really proud hearing this from her just because <laughs> I'm the one that turned her into uh -huh. a Yeah, she girl. started it, yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah. I heard that you had to convince her like eight times and-, and yeah, like, I know. <laughs> That's the thing because all of this has actually happened in the past few years, mm -hmm. even a couple of years ago. People would never expect to see a plus size woman, a woman. Um, uh, just last year, all four major pageants had black women as their title holders. Uh, and that has unfortunately been something super new, but that was the what, what I, I was learning off of where I didn't think something like that was possible in this industry. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad to be in it now because we're all part of this current change. So what she just said is actually why Queen Lee was started. Like literally. Yeah. That's <laughs> <Anyway. laughs> uh, so quickly go over it because Kathy has heard this a million times. Yeah. <laughs> Because of my, um, I guess, financial circumstances in 2013, I um, had to figure out a lot of the different ways to make money to pay my bills. And, you know, I took on a lot of like receptionist jobs, uh, fast food jobs, and even like went to research studies that paid me money, <laughs> like questions or something. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of those and I found that pageants, um, uh, or a way, a great way to gain scholarship and cash prizes. And I was reached out to in 2013 by this organization called Miss Global. And I, I thought it was a scam at first because why would they approach me? I've never done a pageant before. I was like 18, 19 years old. Um, but then I was like, well, it's a free vacation for a week at the Hilton with free food. Um, mm -hmm. I can just go. And so going into it, I, I really didn't expect much and I've never expected to join a pageant before just because I've always just been um, very studious and nerdy and I just didn't dress up like that as much. And so I was really just doing it for the experience and like to get money. Mm -hmm. uh, I got there and my orientation with like 
50 women. Um, everyone was drop dead gorgeous. And I immediately wanted to run out the door because I felt very insecure. I was the youngest one there. I did not know how to do my makeup. I did the typical Asian eyeliner thing, which most of us did in the what 2010s or something. Yeah, <laughs> It was really bad. And so, um, but then it quickly changed my perspective quickly changed because I met them. I talked to the women and I had the best experience learning about their stories, the countries that they come from, their culture. And um, not only were they beautiful on the outside, but they were just kind, compassionate women who had real platforms that they cared about, that they worked towards. And they're also super smart. Like I met lawyers, entrepreneurs, PhD scientists, like it was crazy. And so after that, it inspired me a lot to kind of better myself and to um, grow into, I guess, the woman that I am today. Um, I kept doing it every year to the point where I think I've done like nine now over the past seven years. Is it not? Yeah. So I've done local, state, national, international, and I just wanted to grow and it enabled me to grow and be inspired so much. and because of that experience, I wanted to be able to share it with someone like Kathy, like Maggie, like anyone, like who is trans, who is plus size, who is a minority, like, because I want this stigma to be broken since I think most people don't know the actual benefits of pageants and what it does for a woman's like self-esteem and mm. self-confidence. And so I found that one of the biggest pain points of the women were finding and affording their evening gown because duh, it's like super expensive. And we we all come in like different shapes and sizes and different um, colors of our skin that it's so hard to find one. And so I quickly realized that this applies to prom, weddings, homecomings, any formals, quinceañeras, right? And I realized that a lot of women don't come from a very affluent background. Many come from a background like ours. And right now there's not one way, one safe and secure platform to provide these dresses for them and also to provide them an opportunity to resell it in the future. Um, And so that's when I approached Kathy and I was like, hey, I have this idea. And she's like, no, I don't think it's good. And I was like, Yeah, because I thought dresses were twenty dollars. Pageants or do know any of this stuff. So I was like, okay, Kathy, go do a pageant. So you, yeah. you you'll see what I'm talking about. And she did. And then I guess the rest is queenly history. The rest is queenly history. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. I love that story. And that is so right. Like I feel like a lot of people don't understand, like especially male, like they don't understand the significance of a dress. And it means so much, like whether it be prom or like a party that they're going to or their wedding, you know, like they keep that dress forever because it signifies so much. I'm learning right now. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And so when you guys launched Queenly, I believe it was 2018, right? Uh, oh, 19. 2019. Yeah. Okay. Christmas week of 2018, <laughs> like almost there. Yeah, we're um, working Christmas week and then we launched like January. I think, I oh, think wow. it was okay. because it's confusing because I kept trying to submit it to the app store and they kept rejecting it. Oh, I see. Yeah. File or something. It's actually <laughs> like, apparently it's not that simple to just submit an app to the app store. <laughs> yeah. And so 2019, after you guys launched it, what were the expectations going into it? And talk about like what the first couple of months were like for you two. Yeah, what about your struggles, <laughs> yeah. like being resourceful and not having capital and figuring yeah. out what you're doing. Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, everything was bootstrapped until like late 2019. Um, and I I think we, we had a safety net at that time because we both had full-time jobs. I was at Uber. She was at Pinterest. So it was definitely nights and weekends. And we initially launched in uh, a private beta of like 100 users of like mainly my network of pageant girls. And I I really wanted to utilize my pageant network and the pageant community to gain initial traction because I knew like they already purchased these dresses. They already know what resale is. Um, It's like less friction than like trying to tackle the wedding industry first, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, So our expectations, um, we didn't really have any, I think we were we just, really didn't. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't know what we were like expecting, but we knew we, we had a problem to solve. Mm-hmm. Like we had a problem to solve. So 
Um, for the first few months, we were trying to just collect sellers as a two-sided marketplace, similar to like, you know, Airbnb, you need the supply side first. And so we tried to rack up as much sellers and listings as possible. Mm -hmm. And until we got to the sweet spot of like, okay, someone, a buyer was able to find their dream dress. Um, yeah. And that they had more than at least 10 dresses to yeah. choose from. Yeah. <laughs> you, <on> queenly. <laughs> you have to search like your size and then right. the color and then the silhouette and all those combinations is like, you need thousands of dresses in yeah. order to fulfill that one search. Mm -hmm. um, and May of 2019, that's when we first got our first purchase. Yeah, we got so excited. I think I called you. Wow. I called you. I got that email data job went through about the, yeah. the dress being sold. And I was like, Trisha, someone actually bought something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> working. So yeah, we got our first purchase. Um, but one of the crazy things that I wanted to kind of include in this is that we did a lot of scrappy things, like mm -hmm. super scrappy, because um, not only did we not get any funding yet, but we're also like super cheap, frugal individuals where we like to save money. Like, yeah, we're very passionate about being frugal. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, so we wanted to be like super resourceful. And it was uh, Miss USA 2019 happening in Reno mm -hmm. uh, in May. And uh, we were like, hey, like, we got to promote Queenly there because that's where all of our users are going to be but we can't afford to pay for the official sponsorship mm -hmm. and um, the tickets were like $380 each or something. Um, and so we were just like, okay, let's just go there and print out postcards and like, see what happens. Mm -hmm. um, and initially I wanted to pretend that we were press. So I submitted a press application and we got like a media pass. So that's one. But then we found out that media is not allowed in the theater and they're only allowed in the press room. And we're like, well, that doesn't work because then we can't, we can't look at, you know, we can't give our users, potential mm -hmm. users, our postcards. Um, we asked so many people and everyone was saying no. But at the last second, the security guard thought we were like staff. And she's like, hey, do you guys need help going inside? Because the show already started. And we just went with it. We were like, yeah, 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 we need help. Like, our, you know, we just landed 30 minutes ago. Like, we're super late. Can you help us? And uh -huh. so she escorted us. Though we weren't allowed in there, technically. We didn't have a ticket. Um, but yeah, we pretty much sneaked into Miss USA. And, and we like, plastered the bathroom with queenly postcards we like stood next to the door as people were exiting and giving them like queenly postcards pretending like hey you know did you get one yet here you go like <laughs> uh, like really like salesy right um but yeah that's uh, one of the scrappy ways that we kind of utilized our resourcefulness to gain users wow. without I, I appreciate the hustle i know oh my gosh i'm getting <laughs> chills because it's like that hustle mentality and it's just like you guys looking back after you know a couple of years you're just yeah. thinking like dang we hustled really hard i, I love the yeah. hustle too because it reminds me of asian hustle network a year ago <laughs> I was, like, oh, I was like, oh my God, no one's posting in here. So I just DM like 300 people every day. I was like, hey guys, you want to post in my community? It's for Asian people. <laughs> hey, you're Asian? Like, here you go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, props to you for growing Asian Hustle Network so quickly. It was it was a lot of Trisha's work in doing very similar things. I wanted to emphasize, by the way, that I think that this is the perspective that a lot of people, if they're going to tech, they want to be a tech founder. Mm -hmm. They should really want to not just fill all the boxes of the stereotype because mm -hmm. Trisha does not. That's why I wanted to work with her because mm -hmm. um, her path to network, it really helped with our initial users, but just that ability to think of outside that box and not just be the stereotypical tech CEO. Like that's what's gotten us to last this far. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I love that yeah. too. And out of curiosity, like what was the first turning point when you realized that this could be a real thing? Like we need to go out there and raise money. We need to leave our jobs. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, we're going to make that jump. Like what was that oh, first yeah. realization like? Yeah, because you guys were still working at your full-time jobs yeah. and you guys were doing Queenly on the side. So it's mm -hmm. like, when did you guys uh, realize yeah, like, it's, do this? It's, it's um, sorry uh, to interrupt you. It's a funny story because it was a startup retreat in Hawaii this week uh -huh. long workshop thing that we applied to on a whim yeah by and, we funder yeah uh, yeah it's this company called we funder they're doing a crowd raising uh tech fundraising platform uh they're really great check them out but 
because of their mentorship program. When we flew to Hawaii, uh, they comped our stay there. We got mentors from a lot of YC founders, a lot of people that have grown, some shut down, some sold their companies, and they were the people that initially believed in us. And I think when you're coming from places like us, where you're from that disadvantaged background where you were super poor, no one believed in you, uh, no one thought you could succeed. Like you kind of do need that external validation sometimes of people yeah. being like, hey, what are you doing? You, you're you going to be big. Like you have something working right here. You could be really big. You need to believe in yourself. Yeah. I mean, we didn't know. I think as first time and female founders going into that, I think there were like 15 other companies uh, that were accepted. We thought that we were still too early, but then mm -hmm. we quickly realized that we were actually way ahead than any of the founders there. And we just invalidated all of our progress because we just didn't know. We didn't know relatively. Um, so pretty much like all the mentors that we had were just like, you girls need to quit your job today. <laughs> and they were like begging us to quit our jobs and like start fundraising ASAP because you guys have way more traction than than we did when we fundraised. And so um, I think, you know, mentors uh, in this journey in this tech startup journey is really, really valuable to help you realize these, uh, these turning points. Mm -hmm. well, that's amazing. Yeah, we hear a lot about WeFunder as well and we've heard like amazing things about them mm -hmm. and everything happens for a reason, right? And like, did you guys even like expect to have any like plans to go on that trip or was it like very special? Oh yeah, we had to lie to our managers at work. Oh, I, yeah. I said I was on some like woman's leadership retreat. Later on, I told him the truth and he's, he was, he's a cool guy. So oh. hi Kanan, shout out to you if you're listening. <laughs> oh wow i mean i haven't told mine but yeah i said i won <laughs> i won i won a free hawaii trip on Instagram. <laughs> that's actually pretty believable okay because they told us like a week and a half or something oh, before yeah. we had to go and so i was like crap like i don't know if i can take off that much like i've only been here less than a year um yeah so. i'm glad you guys made that happen yeah I'm, I'm really glad too. <laughs> so, and, so, yeah, so tell us about the fundraising experience. Like, you know, you came back from this retreat and you're like, all right, you have to fundraise ASAP. Did you, you need to leave your job? I'm like, all right, we're going to leave our job next week and we're going to fundraise now. Like, what was that transition like? Um, well, so we had that trip in June and then we actually didn't quit our full-time jobs until September. Yeah, keep in mind that in terms of getting to the state of believing in yourself and feeling like you're ready to take a risk, because it does feel like a big risk. It took a lot of mental preparation. Yeah, and I think it was also kind of like, okay, let's just wait till our vesting period so we could. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, well, mine was already off, but you, yeah, you had yeah. This, yeah. I had like my one year cliff, and I was like, okay, yeah. I might as well just stay. Like, I you yeah. know get these Uber stocks, whatever. <laughs> um, so that's one, but. Yeah, fundraising was pretty uh, scary at first. I mean, it's still scary, actually. But uh, we've learned a lot. And I think a lot of uh, first-time founders actually are very, very naive. We were naive mm -hmm. um, when you first approach fundraising. Um, a lot of founders make so many mistakes. And we made a lot of mistakes. We learned along the way. But um, it's, really a, it's really a game. I see it now as like a game where before I thought that we had to like beg money from them or something, but we forgot that, Hey, you know, these investors don't make money unless we make money. Mm -hmm. Like literally they have this like money from like LPs or whatever, but their main job is to find founders that can make them money. So without the founders, VCs have really no no power to make money if you think about it in that sense. And so I didn't realize that in the beginning. And so the way that our pitch went was like us being desperate for money. And that is just like, that does not bode well. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, it's all about like confidence and controlling the conversation mm -hmm. and just letting them know that you're going to be big and that whatever you're working on, you're solving a real problem. And that as, you know, early stage founders, it's like we have a very unique set of skills and expertise and um, basically like co-founder compatibility mm -hmm. that would take this company very far. And those are things that I didn't really 
pitch in the beginning. Now I know, Mm -hmm. obviously, now we know. (laughs) Uh, But I think I wasted so many meetings by not knowing that. And especially, I would highly, highly discourage anyone from approaching VCs first, uh, which was the mistake that I made. Um, I think always, always start with angel investor checks first mm-hmm. and VPs will come later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really good advice. Yeah. yeah. It's really good advice too, because we're in our fundraising process right now. And we're like, all right. Oh. <laughs> and I love that. Advice. Oh, what? I'm sorry. Congrats to you for starting the process. Yeah, I believe yeah. Thank you. And we got a couple of angel checks coming in. So it's pretty exciting. Wow. Oh, awesome. it's about convincing them that we're something big we're gonna stay here for a long time we're greedy we don't give up type of thing you know yeah yeah, yeah. i love that yeah. because i think a lot of first-time founders they are often very desperate to get money because when you're starting out you are desperate for money you know you're bootstrapping yeah it. it's so easy to come off as desperate right but they do look for people who's like super confident they know that they're going to make those vcs and angel investors money and that's really important advice right there yeah i mean there's also this like paradox when it comes to fundraising because uh vcs want to give you money Mm -hmm. when you don't need it anymore but then when you need the money vcs don't want to touch you which is like the dumbest thing ever but it's really the reality of it like they won't pay attention to you until you're like way advanced. You have all these like metrics and you have all these progress. Until you get into YC. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it's like a chicken and egg problem, right? So we, we really had to like push through and oh God, like we had so many no's. I sent like hundreds of like cold emails, like literally just scraping like who's a VC on LinkedIn, who's an investor, like literally cold reach outs. Um, they barely work, but you know what? <laughs> you have to try that. And then um, as female founders with a female focused product, uh, we were shut down so many times. Um, they would always say our market's too small or like this is not necessary or um, just a bunch of different things. And uh, we've even gotten like a lot of like very sexist um, remarks when it comes to it, like, oh, like, who did you guys hire to build your product when it's like <laughs> Kathy's our CTO yeah. and she builds everything or like, you know, male VCs would tell us like, okay, well that's cool. Let me, let me ask my wife about it. And we're just like, you're going to ask your like wife who shops at like Prada and Louis and Gucci who doesn't care about like saving money right. on resale. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it, it's not accurate. And I've even gotten like one remark from a VC where he said that um, I don't seem like a typical Silicon Valley CEO because I let my co-founder talk too much. Wow. And I was like, that's really weird because like as a CEO, CTO um, dynamic, like we like to mm-hmm. be equals because it is like an equal partition. It's also like- completely normal that most like white male CEOs do do the mm-hmm. even number of talking. Yeah. So that yeah. was that was just very strange. It was like really strange. So um, yeah, I think the biggest takeaway for us is that there's a lot of people with a lot of money in Silicon Valley. So if you get a no, if you get like that racist remark, a sexist remark, mm-hmm. like honestly, move on. There are so many other people who will actually see your vision, who will believe in you and who will give you that check. So don't waste time on like, you know excuse the language, but like assholes yeah. <laughs> that are just going to put you down because there's other people that can support you. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I love that remark too. I think we talked about this right for the podcast. Mm-hmm. How in 2019, only 2.8% of VC fundings went to female-led founders. But over the last year, it dropped to 23 That's very disappointing to hear and very sad to hear at the same time. Yeah. And I do want to touch base upon that too. Like, I know you, you kind of talked about it briefly about you being a female-led founder. Like, do you have tips and advice for other female founders, especially minority founders who want to pursue entrepreneurship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially like if they're trying to, you know, get in contact with VCs and investors as well, but as you guys did. And, you know, in an industry where it's like mostly white male, like how do you approach that? Situation? Or how do you even find the VCs yeah. too? Yeah, I'd say from, um, if I'm able to speak for both of us, we do want to acknowledge the advantage that we were able to establish 
some traction in our own tech careers. Uh, Trisha working at Uber, making a strong network there, and myself at Pinterest. And unfortunately, a lot of women don't even get the opportunity to get to that point. They don't, don't even get to that interview to be an engineer at a place like Uber and Pinterest. And so that unfortunately is a big part of it, just the network. From the fundraising pitching perspective, uh, from the technical side, what's also a huge thing is the level of technical emphasis on asserting your numbers, your metrics growth, as well as the tech stack you've built, um, the technical moat, whether it is patentable, whether you've made breakthroughs in AI and machine learning, like that's something that you actually have to be very defensible in as a female founder compared to the average founder. And that's something that we had to learn the hard way. It took us a long time to learn that we can't listen to the same advice that people generically give to other founders. Like male founders per mm -hmm. se. I mean, female founders just get drilled a lot more on mm -hmm. numbers and just everything because, um, you know, you have your typical Silicon Valley white male founder um, who can raise like $2 million when they have no product. Right. And that does not happen for female founders, especially female minority founders. Yeah, you can't get away with that. <laughs> you just can't. Like, it's just not possible. And we've experienced that firsthand. So um, number one thing is like, before you fundraise, uh, network like crazy um, around your community, around your, your work, et cetera, mm -hmm. because warm intros always work best. Mm -hmm. So once you're ready to fundraise, you know, approach like, uh, former founders or fellow founders, whoever, um, within your network saying like, Hey, you know, I have this, this startup, like I'm trying to fundraise. Um, would you be so kind to just like, give me an intro and they'll know the importance of a warm intro is versus a cold email. So that's one thing, um, finding VCs and investors, um, there's definitely a lot of websites now that you could, you could do this on. Uh, but I just can't stress enough to utilize your existing network for warm intros, just because VCs and investors uh, get cold emails, like hundreds of them per week, right? And it's like, what do they care? It's like your email is most likely gonna go to archive. And so my number one thing is to be able to find VCs and investors, like find it within your network. Like your friend knows a friend that knows this guy. And that will always like work a hundred times better than a cold email. Mm -hmm. That's really good advice. Yeah, we hear that all the time. Warm intros always go a long way. Or you can join Asian Hustle Network. <laughs> so what is like the most important thing? Because I, you know, we obviously see you guys have such a great relationship between the two of you. I'm very curious, like in your perspective, what is the most important thing when finding a co-founder or a partner in business? Because essentially you guys are married in many ways. <laughs> yeah. And you guys are always complimenting each other. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, like, um, it's been such a like crazy journey and it passed by so quickly that I don't even know where the point of me and Kathy's relationship really blossomed yeah. or something. But one funny thing that we've just realized is that a lot of people ask us if we live together <laughs> because, oh, yeah. um, I, I guess um, one of my friends who I've just made said like, oh yeah, it just seems like the two of you live together. It, it, it seems like you have a roommate dynamic. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So I think what people take for granted the most is co-founder compatibility. And By the way, we don't live together. We don't live together. How <laughs> nice. I think. Well, she's always here anyways. But um, a lot of people think that they can just let's just say, you know, post on Asian Hustle Network and say, I'm looking for a co-founder to do this business with me. And then people are going to comment and like, oh, I'm down. Mm -hmm. And like, it seems great at first. Like, oh yeah, this is great. Like, you know, community networking. But um, there's actually a lot more that goes into it than just someone that is interested in whatever you're doing. And it's such a very tricky and dangerous place uh, where, you know, you're going to, you're going to spend a lot of money on legal cost um, establishing your company and then if you have to like fire your co-founder or just like you guys have to split, that's more legal cost. And like people don't think about that. And whatever co-founder friction that you guys have that you didn't know existed because you just met, um, it's going to 
it's going to slow down your progress a whole lot. And VCs, investors don't like that. Like if they see that you're not compatible, like they're not going to want to invest in you really. So um, I think one of our Queenly's biggest strength is actually our relationship. Like Queenly wouldn't be existing today where it is, where, you know, where it's in YC if we didn't get along so well. Um, and I think the biggest thing is um, communication, like really mm-hmm. transparent, candid communication is what I would stress upon for co-founders. Yeah, that honest feedback where you're both coming from a place of trust and where you know that the other person's giving you the feedback just they want you to better yourselves and they care about you. Yeah. And like you said, like it's like a it's like a marriage, right? And so when you think about a marriage, like a relationship, it's like when you're arguing over something, you have to think about that. You're not arguing against each other. You're arguing against the problem. Mm -hmm. Like you're a team, like you can't, you can't go against each other. um, Because at the end of the day, you're only hurting yourselves and your company. And so for me and Kathy, whenever we have issues, like we want to able to be able to tackle it right away Mm -hmm. by by, you know, approaching each other from a place of like um, compassion and understanding and like vulnerability is like really key. Like being vulnerable with each other um, allows you to be so close to each other and to have that bond of trust and respect. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good advice. Yeah, Um, yeah, I mean, finding a co-founder, I would think is very difficult. (laughs) Even more difficult than finding a boyfriend or girlfriend yeah, I mean, yeah, like money's involved right away yeah. <laughs> money involved it changes people it changes their mentality it makes them more defensive and it's kind of you know untrustworthy in many ways so that's a really good tip i mean luckily i have maggie as my co-founder yeah. I, I love that <laughs> yeah, it seems like the two of you also have a really good dynamic going on yeah we complement each other pretty well and we're super honest with each other too like I think with like a normal co-founder type of relationship, we can't be as mean to each other, you know? Where I feel like with me and Maggie, she's like, hey, you're being lazy in this one. You need to talk better. You need to enunciate better. Blah, blah, blah. You know, things are normally hurt my feelings, but but it's not hurt when I'm working with Maggie or something. Uh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so we have one last question for you too. And that is, what advice would you give to an aspiring entrepreneur? Ooh, a lot. <laughs> you have to pick one. <laughs> I could probably like write 10 uh, books about it now. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we'll come okay. up with them. Do you want to start? Do you have one? Uh, my advice is to embrace growth. I think that's like the big theme of everything we've talked about from trying to f- trying to be comfortable with, yeah, if you come from a really different social situation where your your family is not supportive of uh, going into businesses, if you have never had that social, um, that community supporting you before. And as well, it's just like all the zillions of things you're going to have to learn about each other when you're working with a co-founder, about your own business, about pitching. Like you're not going to be the same person you were even a month ago. You're always going to have to change and adapt. And it's always going to be this moving target of how do I improve as an entrepreneur? How do I learn all these more skills? How do I improve as a person? And so just to embrace that change and that constant feedback is super key. That's good. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot that I could say, but I think one that would probably resonate with the Asian Hustle Network community is to prioritize building relationships, building Mm, relationships and building communities. So for me, um, even way before I started drafting um, the app screens for Queenly, even before I even thought about Queenly, I knew that I wanted to start something of my own. And I started building relationships maybe in 2016, where I would go out to so many events in the city and so many like tech conferences, tech talks, et cetera, and really put myself in a vulnerable position of like um, being courageous enough to ask for their email and ask to network with them and like really making friends. And um, 
I never asked for anything at first. And I think that's the key to networking or building relationships. It's not only like what that person can do for you, but what can you do for them at the moment? Oh yeah, yeah. One thing she did was really good is that she helps uh, connect people to each other. Like you always offered favors first. Like you always offered like, oh, I can help yeah. you. Uh, connect to this person or learn about this thing. I forgot how this. I learned this, but like, I just figured like, this is like effective way of networking. Um, you can network by just like asking people everything, but what incentive do they have to do anything for you unless you're their friend or you've done something for them? And I realized that this was key. And so for me, um, a lot of the investors we have today, I started building relationships with them way back when, three, four years ago, such as, you know, I would have never gotten the CTO of Uber and the CPO of Uber to invest mm -hmm. in Queenly. Uh, I wasn't even like high up at Uber. I was like very low at Uber, right? You're important. <laughs> oh yeah, no, but like um, I built such good relationships with them and impressed them with my work ethic and um, basically my personality and uh, that they were so impressed when I told them I was starting Queenly and that they offered to invest in me and I didn't even have to ask. Wow. And so, yeah, um, there's actually this term in uh, Tagalog, which is the Filipino language. It's called Bayanihan. And what it means is like, um, it takes a nation. Mm -hmm. uh, so that can also translate to like, it takes a, a community. It takes a group of people mm. um, to accomplish something. And that really um, resonates with me in my everyday life where Queen Lee wouldn't be here today if not for the community of women that listed their dresses for sale. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, like for the relationships that I built um, with the mentors and the investors that supported us. Um, so yeah, like build relationships, strong ones. Yeah. Love that advice. Yeah, you two gave such great advice. And you know, one thing that I took away from it is that, you know, you, be nice to everyone because you never know who will help you <laughs> <Yeah>. in the <laughs> long run. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Don't burn bridges, like plant seeds. Don't burn bridges. Exactly. Absolutely. Amazing. And so how can our listeners find out more about you two and Queenly online? So our website is now very easy. It's queenly.com, Q-U-E-E-N-L-Y. Dot com and then all of our social media are pretty much at queenly app so app um, and then we also were available in the app store and android um, google play store as queenly and then am i missing anything i'd say that both of us are pretty reachable if anyone oh, wants yeah. to talk to us directly or just Trisha at and Kathy at queenly.com. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I'm always, we're both always looking for people to pass it forward and to share advice to. So yeah. happy to connect to anyone that wants to really. Yes, we are very desperate in changing the 2.3% number. <laughs> yeah. So any female founders out there, like really reach out to us. We'll help you wholeheartedly. Like we got you. Awesome. It's been awesome like watching your story unfold as well. Yeah. And shout out to Trisha. I think you're like literally our 50th member in Asian Hustle Network. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm joined, like, the first hundred. I saw Trisha's name. Yeah. We're just super <laughs> proud of you guys. You know, we also have a spotlight video of you two mm -hmm. on our YouTube channel. Yes. Um, and just. Seeing you two grow and just prosper has been so amazing. Yeah, we're here. we're number one supporter, so appreciate. Oh, you guys thank you doing. so much. Thank yeah, we so much. we appreciate all the consistent support. It means a lot to us. Yes, definitely. And uh, we wish you the best of luck with your fundraising. Let us know if you ever need any help. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. Thank guys. you so much, Trisha, and thank you so much, Kathy. Yeah, thank you for being the show. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.